Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. This is Eat Sleep Work Repeat. It's a podcast about workplace culture, psychology, and life. Hello, I'm Bruce Taisley. I'm Ellen Scott. I'm Matt. This week we've got a interview episode and so we're trying to alternate these between work chats and, and interviews and this week we've got an interview which I think is one for people who are really interested in the mechanics about workplace culture and it's a discussion that I, I set up and I think simultaneously you, you'd you already had an interest in, in this discussion, Matt. This is with uh, a guy called Donald Saul and he teaches at MIT. He's a professor at Massachusetts Institute of Technology, uh, specializing in trying to understand the behavior of groups and Alongside his work there, he's he set up an organization called Culture X, actually with his son, where they they take an AI approach to try to compare notes between how culture in organization is talked about and the realities of it. So he's going to go into the methodology. They effectively scrape the internet for, for what employees of organizations are talking about. You'd already been exposed to this, I think, Matt, when you when we'd set this up. Yeah, I'd been fascinated by a report I came across a couple of years ago, which was looking at Glassdoor to understand different types of cultures and which perform well. And what got me interested was, I think, that a headline which essentially summed up that CEOs, what CEOs say their culture is doesn't have any correlation to what the culture actually is. So their methodology is essentially, it doesn't matter if you talk the talk, but actually, is this being played out in how people are talking about it? So it does matter what you talk if you talk the talk. But essentially, do employees also reflect that same language? So I thought it was absolutely fascinating. And they went into kind of toxic traits. So they talk about the five toxic traits of companies. And it felt like they were essentially landing on if the dark triad is for human personality, which was like Machiavellianism, I think narcissism, psychopathy. They kind of have that for companies. They've got that kind of the dark five. They call it the toxic five, disrespectful, non-inclusive, unethical, cutthroat, and abusive. 
so yeah, I, I was super interested to talk to them and they touched on their methodology and they touched on that toxic five and the impact it has on companies. In the show notes, you're going to find some fascinating articles where, that were some of the reasons why we got in touch with them, um, just about how toxic culture was driving the great resignation, how toxic culture affects women more than men. And hopefully that gives you an interesting context for this discussion. So, so let's uh, open up the chat. This is our interview with Donald and Charlie Salt. Hi both, thanks for joining us. I wonder if you could kick off by maybe just introducing who you are and giving a sense of what you do. Yeah, so we are um, Sol et al. We're a father and son research team based out of MIT, and we, um, uh, we've pioneered a, a new kind of cultural measurement that uh, powers our, uh, our research at MIT, um, and that also powers our uh, company that we started, uh, CultureX, that measures and improves corporate culture in uh, leading companies. Yeah, and I'm Don, so I'm on the, uh, the faculty at MIT uh, in our technology, innovation, entrepreneurship, and strategy unit. We cram a lot into that unit, uh, and along with Charlie, a co-founder of uh, CultureX. I wonder if you could give us a bit of the origin story. So how did you, what made you have this curiosity for looking into culture and and then how did you set about trying to measure it yeah so our, our background is um more in um strategy development strategy execution agility kind of a, a few various things but as we did a lot of this work uh both uh, research and working with leading companies we kept on bumping across this kind of uh invisible force that seemed to be almost at the heart of everything which was uh, culture. And the more we uh, came across this force, the more interested we became in uh, learning it, uh, learning about it and managing it. But the big bottleneck we found in management was effective uh, measurement. Uh, so this set us on a path that is um, ab- about uh, eight years going on now, and it's it's still going on, of developing this, uh, this new form of cultural measurement that rather than looking at um, uh, what you call a Likert scale response, which is how this is typically measured, you know, on a, on a scale one to five, how do you feel about this, 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 this is actually textual measurement. So you're listening to the employee's actual words, their, their natural language, what they say about what they like about the employee experience and dislike. And it turns out when you do things that way, you can get these really interesting insights, which we can uh, talk about in our research. And it's actually a much more effective way to, to measure and manage culture in, uh, in actual companies too. And as I understand it, you get a lot of your data, maybe all of your data, from Glassdoor reviews. So from the reviews that people post online. Is that right? And what led you to that as a source of insight? It's some of our data. For research purposes, it's a fantastic data source. In the U.S. alone, something on the order of 10 million employee reviews at this point from a standing start, you know, a little over a decade ago. So it's, you know, almost certainly the largest consistent source of information on how employees feel about their organization available, maybe that's ever been available. Uh, that cuts across multiple organizations. So it's terrific in that regard, quite balanced. You know, people have this uh, perception that Glassdoor data is where disgruntled employees go to rant. Uh, It's just empirically not true. The distribution looks actually, if you look at the distribution of overall ratings or culture values or whatever, what you see is that it's uh, the distribution is normal kind of skewing towards more positive. So actually on balance, more people are more likely to be positive in their reviews than negative. Uh, And what we find is that even if you look at employees who write a negative review, 
and what they talk about positively, that correlates with what employees who write a positive review talk about positively. And conversely, employees who write a, you know, who rate their company, uh, assign their company a low rating, you know, a one on a five point scale, uh, when they talk about, uh, the cons, those are quite likely, uh, those are highly correlated with the cons of, uh, employees who talk about their employer positively. So even when people have different overall assessments of the organization, they tend to agree on what's working and what's not working. So it's, it's quite a robust data set. That's really interesting because my assumption going into Glassdoor would have been the one that you just proved that typically people are there maybe more likely after they've had a bad experience. And probably if they are that they're going to overemphasize the bad areas. But what you've said is that actually, so firstly, that's not the case, but also the areas that are pulled out are pretty much the same, whether they're quoted as being in a positive review or a negative review. And and, and it's not coincidental that that's the case, that you see this more normal distribution of uh, employee ratings in Glassdoor. So the the challenge that you have in most online rating systems is incentives, like who has the incentives to write a review? And typically it's people who are either very dissatisfied or very satisfied. And so what you have in most online review forums uh, is a distribution of ratings that looks, it's not quite bimodal, but tends towards the extremes. Uh, and what Glassdoor did, which was extremely clever, was they implemented a, a what they call a give-to-get policy. So in order to get all the goodies that they have online in terms of interview questions and salary information uh, and uh, other data, you need to write a review. And so that creates incentives for the typical user who may not be super unhappy or super happy to write reviews, and therefore you get a more normal distribution. I wonder if you then could give us a, a top-line sense of what insight it's given you. You've, you've got this remarkable 10 million reviews. What has it told you about the state of company culture? The I think one of the things I took from your work was that company culture seemed to be one of the biggest drivers for people changing jobs and, and seeking a new employer. Is that right? Absolutely. I mean, our work has spanned a few things. So we started off with a research study where we looked at the correlation between a company's espoused cultural values, their official uh, culture statements, uh, and their actual cultural performance. And what we found there is that there is no correlation. It's not positive. It's not negative. There's just no correlation between values a company says they stand for culturally and uh, their actual cultural performance. Wow, as a sort of an opening salvo, that's remarkable. Give us an example of what sort of things might be said, integrity or innovation? Those are two of the most common espoused values, and integrity is uh, number one. Uh, I mean, one one example we like to use is actually if you look at uh, Wells Fargo's uh, cultural value statements during their, uh, you know, their, their huge scandal a couple of years ago, um, two of their uh, core values were were integrity and uh, customer orientation. We always do the right thing for the customer. So that's one example of uh, espoused values not matching cultural performance, but there are, there are literally countless others. And I think Enron, I remember seeing, had the same values on their wall with integrity before they committed one of the largest frauds in history. So yeah, you, that piece of research was one of the first things I'd seen that especially from you, from you both was, oh my God, there's a clear difference between what a company might say and even what employees might say when they're asked. You mentioned kind of the classic Likert scale with people in employee surveys. There's going to be a clear disparity between 
how people answer those and the reality of the values that have permeated into the language, which it sounds like you're then able to access kind of that second part. Is that is that my understanding correct? I think so. I mean, yeah, Likert scale outcomes are really just a, a, a starting point for understanding a culture. You can get a good sense of on a scale of one to five, how, how well do they like the company? How well do they, do they like their employer, which is useful information. But with textual analysis, you can just go so much deeper. You can look across hundreds of different topics, anything from agility to how pet friendly the culture is, you know, these, these various granular aspects um, and get a real sense in high definition color of, of how a culture actually works and uh, what's not working. Yeah. I mean, for me, if, if you think about, again, it comes back to what Charlie started off with in terms of measurement. So you can't manage what you can't measure. You don't even know what it is. If you can, you know, I mean, the, the, the unfortunate reality is in many organizations, discussions of culture devolve to metaphysics and anecdote you know it's it's just like uh, really nonsense and so if you think about measures one measure would be what are our core values completely uncorrelated with reality on the ground another way of measuring is this you know traditional survey approach and you know don't get me wrong i've i've used a lot of surveys over the years in 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 research and it um you know kind of traditional liquid scale surveys and they they have their um their advantages but the the real limitation is you face a, a fundamental dilemma right if you only ask a few questions, you're missing a lot of topics. You're telling employees what should matter versus them telling you what does matter, and you're likely missing a lot of topics. So you say, oh, great. The answer to that then is we're going to give folks 100 questions. Well, the problem with that is 100 questions, people just switch into, uh, onto, uh, into autopilot. And if they're having you know a, a good day or positive experience, you'll get a lot of fours and fives across all questions where you should be getting very different answers. And if they're having a poor experience, you'll get a lot of ones and twos. And so we actually see much less variance than you would expect to see across very different questions when you give people these long laundry lists of questions. Um, and so the advantage of the free text approach is that, uh, you know, people are seeing a blank sheet of paper, you know, you're saying what's working, what's not, what feedback would you have for the top team? And they're telling you what matters, not you telling them what matters, first of all. Second of all, what they choose to talk about of, you know, the hundreds of things they might mention contains a lot of information. It's giving you at minimum a measure of salience, like what's top of mind for them, and arguably a measure of importance, like what really matters to them, which you can't capture if you're, you know, listing the questions. You know, the third benefit of, of the free text approach, it provides a lot more context. So if somebody just, you know, says psychological safety, you know, I don't feel free to speak up, uh, you know, rate the company low on that. You don't really have any context. Is it their direct manager? Is it the team dynamics? Is it the middle? Is it the perception of the middle manager or senior executives? Or is it what topics do they not feel? It's completely decontextualized these quantitative, you know, these numerical assessments on the, the questions. And so um, it's, um, Free text really is, and it's not to say it's the only way or different measurement methodologies have their pros and cons, but it has a lot of advantages relative to traditional approaches to measuring culture. And the constraint historically has been there weren't the tools available to analyze at scale this data. And, and scale matters because, you know, for a typical 
for CultureX, our, our startup, our typical clients will be, you know, large, uh, multinational organizations. They'll generate in a year between employee engagement surveys, pulse surveys, online employer reviews, exit interviews, something on the order of a hundred Harry Potter novels worth a free text data where their employees are talking about the company or their, their managers. Every year, you know, you really need the technology to be able to analyze that data at scale. You know, historically, it's been lacking and that's now possible, which is super exciting. I've seen discussions from you saying, um, I, I think there was a discussion through the pandemic that the um, that workplace culture and toxicity at work was was driving the great resignation. It was driving people to reflect on what they wanted from their jobs. How, how do you gather that data? And, and is that trend continuing? Is, is sort of workplace toxicity still one of the biggest elements that pushes people out of the door? Uh, I believe it is. And yeah, in terms of our original methodology for that paper, so this relied on big data. So we, we analyzed, uh, I believe it was 1.3 million Glassdoor reviews uh, to measure the culture of about 500 large employers. And then we looked at tens of millions of uh, LinkedIn profiles to measure actual attrition rates. And then we used uh, a, a sophisticated uh, machine learning explainability model uh, to determine basically which out of hundreds of these cultural um, aspects, these cultural topics that you could look at, so anything ranging from you know, cross-unit collaboration to empowerment to compensation to what have you, which of these have the most powerful impact on actual attrition. And what we found uh, by far, it wasn't even close actually, was that toxic culture was the most powerful driver of actual attrition that we identified. The reason we still believe that toxic culture matters is because when we work with actual companies and we do a similar analysis using their internal data, uh, we almost always find that uh, that toxic culture is one of the most powerful drivers of things like employee satisfaction and retention. What's surprising about that is that's true even in relatively healthy cultures. You would expect that to be true in these relatively toxic cultures, but that's kind of true across the board. Toxicity is something that, as far as we can tell, really matters for almost all employee populations. What, what does it mean? What, what is toxic culture? How would I recognize that I'm in a toxic culture? Oh, sorry if I could jump in, Charlie. I, I mean, that was the question that first got us interested in this uh, this topic. I mean, actually, we kind of stumbled in it, to be honest, because what we were looking at was what were the attributes of culture and more broadly employee experience, so including things like compensation and benefits and other, you know, all the things that would matter to an employee. What would be most predictive of a very negative review? Right. So it might not. And indeed, we found it's 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 asymmetric. Some of the things that are most predictive of a negative review, if you do poorly on them, are not most predictive of a positive review. If you do well on them, they're kind of threshold issues that employees expect to be met um, when they walk in the door. And if they're not, um, it leads to a very negative reaction. So what we're the you know the question we got at like what really makes a culture toxic what leads people to say on a five point scale this is a one and if I could give it a negative one I would uh, and uh, what we found again we um, in that analysis I think we had about 125 attributes of employee experience and culture that we measured and what we found was there were basically five attributes 
that were really predictive, uh, very strongly predictive of very negative outcomes, right? These weren't the kinds of things that typical people grumble about a lot. There's lots of things people grumble about, you know, oh, it's too bureaucratic, we're slow moving, you know, it's uh, we're siloed. People grumble about many things, but then they give the company a four or five rating. Right. But these were the five things that when employees mention them, they almost always mention them negatively. And what those were, were first and foremost, respect. If employees feel disrespected, if they feel excluded, so non-inclusive cultures, and that can be inclusivity, both in the sense of demographics or identity. So, you know, women feeling excluded or underrepresented minorities feeling excluded, but but more broadly, uh, cliquishness or uh, favoritism. The third component was if employees perceive the organization is acting in an unethical manner, you know, back to the uh, Wells Fargo or Enron examples, if management is perceived as abusive, and then if the culture is uh, described as cutthroat. And so what cutthroat means, it has very specific meaning in psychology. So, you know, collaboration is oftentimes difficult in organizations across different teams. That's normal. Cutthroat is worse than that. It's not just that collaboration is difficult. It's that people go out of their way to undermine one another. If any of those five attributes employees talked about in their reviews, they're much more likely to give a very negative assessment of the company. And so a couple of things to note about that. Well, we just, so we didn't have a horse in this uh, race coming in. We didn't, you know, we didn't have any strong priors as to, it was kind of exploratory analysis. Uh, but we discovered this bundle of what we call the toxic five were really predictive of very negative reviews. We then went back and started digging into empirical research, and each of these had been studied separately. And what was interesting is they had been found in isolation to be predictive of negative employee outcomes, uh, attrition, uh, uh, low engagement, job dissatisfaction. And there had been some work in some meta-analyses that showed they tended to be correlated, much as we found them correlated in the Glassdoor data. So, you know, the question of what makes a culture toxic, we took as an empirical question, like rather than, you know, what makes a culture toxic is what I don't like, you know, which is a very broad and not very helpful definition. You know, we discovered these five attributes. And then when we dug into uh, what other scholars had, had written about, we found that indeed, you know, there was a, a solid body of data on each of them in isolation and some preliminary data showing that they they tended to uh, load onto a single factor. They tend to be correlated with one another, uh, which uh, gave us some confidence that that the Glassdoor data was representative of, uh, of a, you know, what we would see in a broader employee population. One thing I found particularly shocking, although perhaps sadly not surprising from your research, was the impact that this has on women, that they're more likely to experience the negative effects of a toxic culture. But not only that, they're therefore then more likely to leave a job. I'd love to, if you could just expand a little bit on your findings in relation to kind of those power dynamics you also then pull out in the research. Yeah, I mean, the effect size we found is very large. So we found that women are, uh, at least in America, but across different countries, we found fairly similar things. Uh, women are 41% more likely to report toxic culture than men. And this holds true across all but one aspect of the toxic five. So this holds true across uh, disrespectful behavior, abusive behavior, cutthroat competition, non-inclusive behavior. 
probably the the big takeaway was was simply how large this effect size is. I mean, one thing you can compare this to is is the wage gap, which is uh, you know widely spoken about and rightfully so. The toxic culture uh, gender gap is even uh, larger than the wage gap, and it's arguably something that would uh, impact employees more on a day-to-day basis. Yeah, I mean, I, I would just pick up on that point that Charlie mentioned. I mean, there's a, there's not just our research, a lot of folks have found when they um, are trying to predict outcomes, again, like engagement, attrition, uh, jobs, dissatisfaction. Compensation is typically not the top predictor. Uh, it's, it's in the top 10, but sort of in the middle. Uh, and often these elements of culture are better predictors, which is not surprising to anyone who's had a job. Like, of course, you think about compensation, but if your compensation is, you know, kind of over a threshold, culture in many settings will matter as much or more than compensation. I'd love to dig into the social norms aspect of what you're talking about. Previously in the paper, you talked about there being three ways to tackle kind of toxicity with leadership, social norms and work design. Could you expand on that and explain a little bit about what you mean practically with these social norms? Uh, so the good news is we know social norms matter. Uh, I think the less good news is that there's been not as much research as would you know we probably like to see within the context of organizations which have their own dynamics. So you, you know the first thing to note is just how powerful they are. So in the context of safety, worker safety, you know, physical safety from accidents and so forth. The single best predictor of injury in high risk jobs, you know, this is construction jobs, for instance, manufacturing jobs, is not what um, uh, the likelihood of injury. It's not the demographics of the employees. It's not what the formal policies are. It's not what the formal sanctions for violating the formal policies are. It's the social norms among the intact work teams. So if, you know, if you've got a, you know, a group of construction workers who think it's not macho to wear a, you know, a hard hat, uh, regardless of what the rules are, those social norms are going to lead to behaviors that are in that case going to increase the risk of accident. So what's interesting there is that's the social norms are so strong, even when it's obviously an employee's best interest not to get injured, right? So, you know, one, social norms are extremely strong. Two, uh, you know, coming back to this question about do, you know, do you want to throw out values? No, but you want to connect your values to social norms explicitly to kind of give them teeth. Uh, and so, you, you know, an example would be Netflix. So we've written a case about Netflix, which has a, this is now we're shifting from talking about toxic culture to in that case, talking about uh, a culture that promotes agility and innovation. Uh, and so one of their uh, their norms is candor, candid discussions. And there's a lot of great evidence from Amy Edmondson and her you know, doctoral students and co-authors uh, around the benefit of uh, psychological safety and candor in terms of stimulating experimentation and learning and innovation. Amy's got a, a great new book out, um, uh, The Right Kind of Failure, uh, on exactly these topics. So we know a lot. We know this is really helpful for innovation and candor is really uh, crucial for innovation and um, agility. And lots of companies listed as one of their values. But again, we saw there's on average uh, zero correlation between official values and reality. So what you want is these social norms, which kind of shape behavior on a day-to-day basis where there are social rewards for conforming to those norms in terms of acceptance and status and so forth and social sanctions for deviating from those norms that you're, you know, kind of called out or, um, and so, you know, in the Netflix case, for instance, they have something they call sunshine, which is basically they when something goes wrong, they write up what went wrong 
and how, um, what they learned, what lessons they learned. And then they circulate that, um, uh, that analysis throughout the organization. And so, you know, that's something most organizations don't do. And that's a, you know, that's a, that's not a value. That's not candor, this kind of abstract, you know, good, but abstract, uh, uh, you know, overarching value. It's a very, you know, tactical thing. Like, okay, you know, we had an initiative. We, cause we're trying new things. Sometimes they don't work. We all know that. We wrote up uh, what went wrong, what we learned from it, and, you, you know, we circulate that. So we, we are collectively learning from this. And by the way, we're, no, you know, we're sending the signal. It's, this is what happens when you try new stuff. Some of it doesn't work. And the most important thing is to talk about it, f- frankly, and learn from it. So, yeah, you know, those, those social norms can play a very um, uh, critical role in giving your values teeth. In, in terms of how to implement social norms, I mean, two things to note. One is some social norms you can have, you you know, your listeners can have an impact on in their own team. So around psychological safety, for instance, you know, Amy's uh, uh, work on psychological safety is terrific. And she's shown that at the team level, you can build norms of psychological safety that may not be universal throughout your organization. Other norms like cross-unit collaboration, you can't unilaterally build those norms, right? Those have to be more organization-wide. So that's just a a caveat to note. But for that subset of norms that, um, which are very important norms, you know, around respect, around, um, uh, you know, candor, around experimentation, which can uh, be developed at the team level, um, what's interesting is involving the team in the norm, or what's important, I guess, as a practical matter, is involving the team at the norm development level rather than you know trying to dictate them from above. There was a um, a, a very nice uh, intervention at the uh, Veterans Administration Hospital in the U.S., which is uh, the uh, the healthcare system that treats uh, military veterans in the U.S. Uh, it's the largest healthcare system in the U.S. Um, and they were very focused on uh, building respect among employees. That was the, um, uh, the, the value they were trying to address. And rather than saying, okay, like here are the set of norms that apply everywhere in the system, which couldn't have worked, right? Because they have, you know, the norms that would apply in a, a, a research intensive facility in New York City are going to be very different from the norms that would apply in a primary clinic in, you know, rural Alabama, you know, just social norms because of location and, uh, uh, and uh, function or discipline are going to vary in the idiosyncrasies of a team. So rather than doing that, what they did was set up a program that said, let's be clear, what we're trying to achieve here is respect, Okay. They gave um, uh, some tools to help, you know, back to Charlie's point about measurement, measure kind of the baseline level of respect. And then the teams were given basically uh, three hours off every week for about six months to work on, okay, here's our situation at present. Here's what's working. Here's what's not. Let's brainstorm norms that work for us that will help to increase respect. And let's track progress over time does take an investment in, in time and effort to um, uh, for teams to develop those norms locally. Tell me, but one of the things that I think um, things people are often saying frequently now is that, oh, their culture doesn't feel the same, that things maybe since the pandemic have, have got worse. And I just wonder if we're, we're getting any evidence of that. Has culture diminished? Has its importance for people changed in a world of more flexibility? 
wonder as we head towards the end. I wonder if you've got a perspective on that. Well, I think there are two things going on. One, one is the uh, sheer effect of the pandemic on everything about people's mental lives and professional lives. And the second is uh, remote work and hybrid work. Um, so both of those kind of happen at the same time. Uh, the first effect, to the best of our knowledge, actually uh, really improved how uh, how employees thought about culture. So it's something called the COVID bump. And it's a fairly substantial bump that you can see across Glassdoor data and also if you look at internal data from companies, um, where during the pandemic, especially the first year, year and a half of the pandemic, um, uh, employees perceived leadership much more favorably and also other aspects of the the employee experience like integrity. Uh, and what we think might be going on there, we're, we're not sure, it's, it's a little bit uh, mysterious, but we think that could have been a kind of a crisis effect. So, that, you know, COVID was this time of great uh, uncertainty and employees were looking for something to cling to. They couldn't necessarily cling to their, uh, you know, the government so much. So in a lot of cases, they turned to their employer as the source of uh, stability. So in in that sense, we actually see uh, culture becoming uh, more important and perceptions becoming more favorable um, uh, in the advent of COVID. And then the second thing going on is uh, hybrid work, which uh, certainly has an impact on uh, on uh, on culture. And I'll, uh, we're we're actually working on a paper uh, about that right now. I'll let Don uh, give give the basics on that one. Yeah, I mean the two points I'd note, I think Charlie analysis is spot on that you know there's the kind of COVID effect and then there's the remote work effect and and it's it's we're just now starting to be able to disentangle those and on the on the COVID effect I think uh the which I says is precisely right that there was this you know kind of COVID bump um what's interesting I think in the post-COVID era is that a lot of leaders that we talk to you know their assumption is we had a healthy culture pre-COVID then there was this disequilibrating event or bundle of events, really, because there were political issues and geopolitical issues and uh, you know social issues combined with the pandemic and the lockdown. So it was really this cluster of um, of shocks to the system that uh, uh, occurred simultaneously, uh, and and so we had a healthy culture. Uh, prior to all of that going on. And then if we just do nothing, we'll come right back to the uh, culture ex ante. And I think that's a bad assumption. I think really what leaders should be thinking about now is a window of opportunity is opened to reinforce your, uh, you know, your cultural values and your social norms. But that takes active management and attention and focus on the part of leaders. It won't just happen on its own. And if it if you don't actively manage it as a leader, don't be surprised when you don't get what you want. Right. So that's that's the first point on on the on the remote work. That's super, super interesting. As as Charlie says, uh, we have an analysis and a paper that we're working on right now. The big picture finding is that there are certain attributes of culture that seem to are consistently work less well in organizations where people are very positive about their remote and hybrid work. You know, to flag a couple of those, one is around um, collaboration, uh, perhaps not surprisingly, uh, and and particularly cross-unit collaboration uh, seems to suffer. Um, a second is around uh, recognizing rewarding performance, which again, it, it's it, people I think tend to forget one of the benefits of having co-location of employees is that it's easier to see who's working on what and get a sense of who's putting a lot of effort in and who's maybe shirking a little bit more. When folks are remote, that's um, 
uh, those signals are harder to gain. And so you need a, a, a better measurement system in place in terms of, you know, objectives and progress against those objectives. And many organizations don't have those. Um, it looks like there may be some, uh, there's clearly some impact on coaching and mentoring. And we have this uh, data from other research as well that, um, uh, you know, uh, managers just spend less time coaching and mentoring remotely than they do when they're face to face. And this happens, this impacts disproportionately uh, younger employees and female employees on average. Um, so, you know, what we're, what we're not arguing is that remote and hybrid work is bad or that it's going away or that it should go away. Of course not. But what we are saying is, or what we will be saying in this paper is uh, there are some empirically demonstrable uh elements of culture that tend on average to suffer in organizations that are really fully committed to remote and hybrid work. And so as leaders, you need to manage those. Um, so watch this space. Uh, I think it's going to be a pretty, um, it's shaping up to be a very interesting paper. I did have one question. You talk about um, when you're talking about kind of the machismo in a particular team, it made me think about you have as many cultures as you have teams across a company. So there isn't just one kind of culture that permeates everywhere. It shows up differently. I just wanted to get a sense of whether your own research kind of shows a similar thing. Well, it's a super, it's a fantastic question. I think one that hasn't been explored in enough depth, at least among academics, um, is, is, is it culture singular or culture is plural? And the answer is it's both, right? I mean, so what you, you know, if you go back to, um, uh, uh, Jenny Chapman and, and uh, Charles O'Reilly's definition of culture. It's a sh- set of uh, shared va- uh, of values that are widely shared, deeply held, or translated into uh, you know social norms that, where there are sanctions for violating those norms. But the interesting or the relevant bit there for this uh, discussion is uh, deeply held and widely shared, right? And so what we observe in organizations is there will be some norms that do tend to be shared across the organization. And then there will be other norms that will be more team specific or idiosyncratic. Um, And uh, we don't know a lot about this. I mean, we personally don't know, I think collectively as a field, we don't know a lot about this. Um, But, you know, some of the things that we see uh, uh, as tending to be norms that are more, um, you know, unit shared across the organization or around cross unit collaboration, like the extent to which the silos, you know, we work well across silos or we're very independent. That is something that tends to be a, uh, an organizational norm. Risk tolerance tends to be quite organizational, which is a problem for a lot of companies because, you know, they may have one, you know, if you're in, in banking, for instance, you'll have some biz- parts of your business where compliance is super important and you want really, really low risk tolerance. And then, you know, you have asset management or investment banking where you want more experimentation. If you have a kind of one size fits all approach to um, uh, to risk tolerance, it, 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 you may not be experimenting sufficiently. Um, so, you know, there are some elements of culture that tend to be, uh, uh, tend to be more, um, uh, more global. And then, uh, you know, as we talked about, for instance, psychological safety is, is one where you can get at the local level respect. You can get at the local team level. And, and also, you know, to further complicate the story, there are some organizations where, 
a lot of the values are shared universally, and you have other organizations where very few of the values are organization-wide. You know, typically um, uh, companies that have grown through mergers and acquisitions without an active mechanism for integrating cultures will have very disparate cultures across the acquired units. Um, so it's a it's a super um, uh, it's a really interesting and important question that. But, you know, we don't know as much about as uh, as we should. Chaps, I'm, I'm so immensely grateful for the time you've taken today. And, and uh, we've given a few links to some of the things you've written in the in the show notes. But look, we're looking forward to those new papers that you've talked about as well. It's uh, it's great to get someone who really a, a team that have, have really sort of unpicked what we understand about culture and, and can give us so much insight on it. So thank you so much for your time today. So thank you to Donald and Charlie. Intriguing stuff. And definitely, if you are responsible for values at your organization, it makes a a really critical point. I found myself really thinking about the way that values might be a flawed way of doing it. And I saw something recently, obviously, that, uh, that talked about how the importance of having prescribed actions and rituals is a more effective way of, of bringing uh, culture to light. So, you know, in the context of that, it really struck me that it's, it might be a discussion worth having in your own workplace. Yeah, we never talk about values without also having corresponding behaviours, because you're absolutely right. It's got to show up meaningfully in what we do day to day in our actions. So I think you need that pairing, kind of the values and behaviours that illustrate that in action. I think listening to it, the bit about social norms being more impactful in some ways and the like strict rules was fascinating. And I think exactly exemplifies why values actually need to be embedded in the culture of your, your organisation. You can't just go, as they said, everyone has to wear hard hats. You have to make it not cool to wear hard hats, but socially approved. Yeah, the idea of kind of social incentives and then... Yeah, it feels almost bad to think about kind of social sanctions, but essentially, you know, that's what they are when it's someone behaves badly and everyone basically goes, nah, not cool. That's not how we do things. And the idea of bringing in sanctions seems very Orwellian, but social sanctions almost emerging organically because of the values you've created and the type of atmosphere you want. Yeah, totally makes sense really benefited from the discussion i think you're going to find uh, most value by pairing it with the article so do check out the articles in the show notes because i think it's probably going to bring even more context to to what we've discussed there thank you both to both of them for joining us thank you for listening we'll be back next week for now i'm bruce daisley i'm ellen scott and i'm matt cook and we'll see you next time Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. 
mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.